Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wisher. It's my very great pleasure to be introducing this evening's event. Um, I, would call our, uh, I would call our author this evening a national institution. If I didn't know, he'd spent most of his adult life trying to dismantle them. Um, <laughs> he was, as we know, a, a very powerful figure in the turbulent 60s, and he's gone on to write a number of uh, very important books analysing the politics and players in countries as diverse as Pakistan and Venezuela, in addition to a clutch of novels, and um, all of these will be available in the signing tent afterwards. Um, but apart from being ubiquitously well-informed about uh, social and cultural and constitutional history, he's also passionately interested in the events of today, as we're about to find out. Please welcome Tariq Ali. I remember speaking at this festival in this very space um, about three, four years ago. I've done it more often than that, but about three, four years ago, I was so angry about the Iraq war. Uh, and knowing full well, the anger in Scotland was much greater than in the South about the Iraq war. I said, I remember asking a sort of slightly rhetorical question, saying, how long are the Scots going to tolerate new labor? For God's sake, get rid of them. <laughs> so this time, all I can say is thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I start with that because the by-election that took place in Glasgow not so long ago was being watched by many non-Scottish people uh, all over the country. And we were very tense because many of us just wanted new Labour defeated. And the fact that it was the SNP doing it rather than the Tories, of course, was an extra bonus. <laughs> uh, that's not a choice that we have south of the border, but it is a choice uh, that, you, that you have in this part of these islands. Uh, and it was really a joyous night. I mean, you know, one stayed up till the recount was done. And it marks, I think, a very significant period now in British history and probably British constitutional history. So how uh, the situation pans out is interesting, but let's discuss just to start off with what New Labour stood for. If you listen to them, because we live in a strange epoch at the present time, an epoch which I sometimes characterize as an epoch in which politicians tell what they regard as necessary lies and where there are too many dangerous truths to be told in the media, or on the, in the print media, or the television screen. So it's an epoch of necessary lies, so-called, and dangerous truths. And one of these <coughs> lies that New Labour's new leaders, after 97, said was that A, they were going to do something different, B, that this was a, going to be a big reformist administration which is going to modernize the country. That's what they said. And essentially, as some of us warned, I hate 
being in, you know, saying we told you so, but some of us did warn that if you read what they were writing, Peter Mandelson and his chums and what Blair was saying, all they were promising was a more effective form of Thatcherism. More effective because they surrounded it with an incredibly controlled media network, or spin doctoring as they called it, to convince people that what they were doing was new, but everything they did was to continue what had been done from 1993 onwards by Thatcher. And the decision made was this, that the old social democratic habits of the British public, especially of the less privileged British public, had to be broken for once and for all. That the answer to everything was the market, and the answer to everything was privatization, and this was the way they were going to proceed, and this, we were told, was reformist and modern. And if you didn't like it, and you criticized this, and said social democracy was better than this, essentially what they said to you, you live in the past, you're dinosaurs, all that world has gone. And so instead of some principled politicians being involved in the running of this country, few though they always were, there were always some, essentially what we got was a bunch of complacent and visionless opportunists who embraced the new epoch over-enthusiastically. Why they thought they could go on like this forever, I don't know. Because sooner or later, politics based essentially on a lie does get caught out. And the new labor project, which began in 1997, came to an end in 2008 in the by-election in Glasgow. And so I can say that the mask came off, and underneath the mask, you could see all the deformations and all the tensions that had built up, because it's not easy to lie indefinitely. And now I'm sort of in the proud position of saying that new labor has aged more rapidly than I have. So, we are now living in a period, globally, where there is an economic crisis. And a few days ago, I was reading the Financial Times, a good paper to read in times of crisis, because they're not very demagogic, and they provide the facts, and you have to read through them. Mm. And there was an article by Lawrence Summers who was president of Harvard, he's still a top economics professor at Harvard, and he was Bill Clinton's treasury secretary. Central figure in the Clinton administration. And what does he write? He writes something that no one yet has had the nerve to say in the British media or within the British political financial establishment. But Larry Summers writes, the crisis is much more serious than we think, it is not simply a crisis of financials, financial liquidity. 
it is also a crisis of commodities and their availability. It is a crisis of growing unemployment. It is a credit crisis. It is a crisis of debt. We are a debt-ridden country. And to my astonishment, he proposed that the two big mortgage companies, Fannie and Willie as they're called in the... <laughs> Forgive me, they're not my names. Uh, <clears throat> but that is what these mortgage companies are called. And they were set up by the state to help the poor find some housing, because public housing was always a very weak business in the United States. And these companies have run into a lot of trouble. And Larry Summers was saying, so enraged, that the Treasury was pouring in billions now to sustain them, that he said, at the very least, you should punish the shareholders, remove them, remove the management, and stop paying all dividends. In the old days, the phrase that used to explain what Larry Summers is asking for was expropriate. Nationalize without compensation. That is what he's saying in the Financial Times just last week. Very angry. And what is he proposing? Essentially, he's proposing a new deal. He is proposing traditional Keynesian social democratic measures, lots of public spending in order to try and revive the economy and rebuild capital, not liquidity. Rebuild industry. Now, is he an only voice? I've even heard some Republican senators coming close to saying this on American television networks but not a single senior British politician has said so, because they're craven. They know it's a serious crisis, and they carry on merrily going down their route. And the big alternative to Gordon Brown that we are presented with is a total Blairite, young David Miliband. And the newspapers talk, did you see how he took off his jacket? Did you see how he put his jacket on his back? Didn't he remind you of the young Blair? They haven't got it. We don't want to be reminded of the young Blair. We've had enough of young, old, middle-aged Blair. Because the one thing, they promised a lot of what they delivered in terms of privatizations. And this obsession, obscene obsession they have now with accumulating wealth themselves that a lot of the Blairite cabinet ministers involved in privatizing chunks of the health service, selling off schools to companies and calling them academies, and numerous other things, have ended up on the boards of these companies, something which any labor politician, left or right wing, used to attack the Tories for doing constantly and more so under Thatcher. And now they do it themselves. They queue up for handouts. That's what they want. So what about politics? What about social democracy? The Americans are now calling for it, but no one here. And what they certainly, but what they didn't promise us in their manifestos, they promised privatization and globalization. They didn't promise war. And Britain has been involved in more wars under Blair and New Labour than they were under Thatcher. 
That's the fact of it. Now today, some of you who saw the news earlier will see what's going on in the Caucasus. The Georgians entered Ossetia, a part of the old Soviet Union that the Ossetians didn't want them to enter. And it's now become clear why the Georgians did it. You read the press today, Sunday Times, uh, Financial Times, Sky News. Half an hour ago I was saying, and a correspondent was pointing out they've done it deliberately to provoke the Russians in order to get into NATO quickly, but it's backfired. The Russian, the Russian uh, spokesman at the Security Council, replying to the Americans, upped the ante. He said, yeah, civilians have been killed, Yours, the Georgians have killed them, we've had to respond, we've killed them, but who are you to teach us? Today, just now, he said, who are you to teach us? You bombed Serbia, you bombed Belgrade, you're bombing Iraq, you're bombing Afghanistan, so we don't need lessons from you. And you know, at the time when the United States began to behave in this way after the Cold War came to an end, some of us warned that if this becomes the style and pattern of international relations, that you use brute force to get your way in different parts of the world, I remember writing this at the time of the Yugoslav War, sooner or later some regional power, not as strong with you, will say if you can do it, we can do it too. And that's exactly what the Russians are doing now. So all those who support this behavior, this style of operating in entering countries with force and armies will now not be able to criticize the Russians because after all, they've done what the United States is doing. And meanwhile, in Iraq, we now have the figures, which no one denies anymore, that nearly 1.2 million Iraqis have perished since the occupation of that country. Three million refugees. God knows how many millions injured and hurt. This has been the result of this occupation. And not happy with it. Now they are saying, even those who've realized that the Iraq war has been a total disaster, and are now saying, let's move on to Afghanistan. Okay, let's pull the troops out of Iraq but let's move into Afghanistan. What has Afghanistan done to deserve this? I mean, the aim of the war in Afghanistan was to capture the Al-Qaeda leadership, we were told. That's all. Go in, take out Osama bin Laden and his crew, bring them back dead or alive, was what Bush ordered. That was in 2001. We're in 2008. These people haven't been captured. On the contrary, invading and occupying Iraq, sending in NATO to occupy Afghanistan, instead of actually decreasing the amount of people who want to become and move in the direction of terrorism, it's increased it, as every intelligence report in this country and the United States shows. The war in Iraq and now the war in Afghanistan is finding more and more recruits for people who are desperate, bitter, angry, foolish, who want to go and take people out elsewhere. So it doesn't help. You always have to look for a political solution. So I've been you know, puzzling as to what are the wretched aims in Iraq. It can't be to capture a group of who most intelligence people say, the Al-Qaeda group, which hit the United States, is less than maximum figures given are less than 2,000. 
So you can't occupy a country just to find 2,000 people. That is usually done through police work, effective police work. And all the Al-Qaeda people they have captured has been through police work with the help of the Pakistanis, not in Afghanistan. So what is the motive of taking Afghanistan? Well, we were wondering. And then uh, earlier this year, I was in the United States and picked up the New York Times and read a speech given by the NATO Secretary General, a particularly wooden-headed Dutchman called uh, <laughs> Jupe Scheffer, who was asked the biggest thing, the most influential think tank in the United States is the Brookings Institution, very close to the government. They held a meeting where Jube Sheffer was arresting, it was, uh, addressing them, and it was a totally friendly audience. They're all on side. But they did ask him, they said, could you explain to us what are the aims in Afghanistan and why are we there? And he said, and I exaggerate not, it's all on record, this has got nothing to do with good governance. It is because Afghanistan is a critically important state strategically, because it, had, it has borders with China, Iran, and the Central Asian republics, i.e. Russia. So the opportunity to build permanent military bases there by NATO is something we cannot forego. Actually said this. Um, and I, given all the, uh, the, the footnote references to all these things in, in, in the New Left Review for which I write, then the NATO magazine, NATO Review, the official magazine, uh, in a recent essay, they said we, the function of NATO now has to be to defend systemic stability all over the world. The center of gravity of power on this planet is moving inexorably eastward. The Asia-Pacific region brings much that is dynamic and positive, but rapid change therein is not stable. Unless this is achieved, it is the strategic responsibility of Europeans and North Americans to lead the way. Security effectiveness in such a world is impossible without legitimacy. Now, I, this is sort of not, nothing new. It's been the traditional uh, desire of all colonizers and empire builders to argue this line, it is strategically important for us and we're going to do it. But what has brought about this big shift? It's not a military threat. No one poses a military threat to Western Europe, leave alone the United States. The United States is militarily way ahead of any other power the eight times ahead. China, which comes second, has got a tiny budget militarily, military budget compared to the United States. So it's not threatened militarily, but what is the case and what has happened is that a big structural shift has taken place in the world market. And this is a shift uh, which can only be explained in the following way, that China today, capitalism in China, Chinese capitalism has become the workshop of the world. It is the workshop of the world, so much so that when after 9-11, the United States realized that they needed a lot of flags 
which they couldn't produce themselves. They had to ring up the Chinese, and the Stars and Stripes were rapidly produced in Chinese factories and flown over by special planes. The market needed them. The Chinese supplied them. Uh, this, of course, doesn't just apply to flags. It applies to almost everything. And the role China is playing today is very similar to the role Britain was playing in the world in the 19th century and the early 20th century in terms of the Industrial Revolution and the rapid growth of Britain. And then Britain acquired an empire. The Chinese so far has shown no need to do that. But who knows? But certainly, they are without doubt the most dynamic capitalist state in the world, which proves one point, which many of us used to make in the past, that capitalism and democracy aren't twins. That you can have a totally dictatorial authoritarian state being very efficient in capitalist terms without having even the pretense of democracy. And China is an explanation of that. They're doing extremely well, which is why everyone, all the West, is looking at them. But the United States at the same time feels threatened by them economically, not militarily, because they are heavily dependent on the Chinese. So their think tanks are constantly thinking of game plans. If we have to, if there's a big crisis, if there's a big crunch, how do we destabilize China? How do we balkanize China? Do we use the Tibet option? Do we use the Taiwan option? They haven't got a clear plan, and it's not going to happen. Because it's one thing to balkanize the Balkans. It's a totally different thing to go and do something on that scale in China itself. But it's the Chinese obsession which determines all this rubbish being talked about by the NATO people. And the result of this <coughs> was that the United States forced the puppet they planted in Kabul to sign a treaty with them saying that NATO can have bases in Afghanistan forever, in perpetuity. Unheard of. And there were riots in every big Afghan city as a result of that. And after they pushed it through, for the first time ever, China and Russia held joint military maneuvers in that region. And they obviously decided we're not going to take this lying down, nor did the Iranians. The Iranians called in the, Iranian go uh, the Afghan government and threatened them, said we'll cut off all trade unless this treaty is revoked. So it's still now, it's being discussed again. But this is what all these wars are essentially about, is to preserve the hegemony of the only empire the world has today, the United States, on a global scale. It's not going to work. It's not going to work out like that. And it's extremely foolish of European states to back all this stuff uncritically. I mean, you know, I don't have a list on me, but if you look at the countries involved in Afghanistan, it's an astonishing lift, list. Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Georgia, of course, all the Western European countries involved in some way or the other. The Italians, when asked, what are you doing in Afghanistan? They're saying, we're training magistrates to create a good judicial system. 
I mean, I almost feel that it's better to bomb Afghanistan than to give them a bloody Italian judicial system. Uh, it's a narco state, Afghanistan. Since the NATO occupation, the amount of cocaine and heroin produced has shot right up. The Taliban, ghastly though they were, and no one liked them, had put a stop to it in large parts of the country and the production had gone down. Uh, it's gone up again. Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, presented in the British and Western media as a great Democrat. His brother is the biggest crook in the country heavily involved in the arms trade and the drug trade and a billionaire. The grouping round Karzai is sold off prime land in Kabul and Kandahar, given it to their cronies and protected by NATO troops, they're building large villas for themselves. Apart from anything else, it's very short-sighted because when NATO leaves, which it will have to do sooner rather than later, they'll have to take Karzai and his brother and all the cronies with them because no one in that country is going to trust these people or work with them again. And now the United States have been threatening for the last year. You know, whenever things go wrong with an occupation, someone else is always to blame. And now they're saying that Pakistan has to blame, is to blame. This is their closest ally in the region. And they've been asking the Pakistani leaders for permission to come into your country. I'm not joking, they actually said, they put in a list of 12 demands. And one of the demands was the right of Americans to enter Pakistan without passports or visas. So when the Ministry of Defense person said, where will you enter from? And they said, the Afghan border. So they said, what an invasion. And they said, no, a friendly entry to sort of try and, uh... so they, they turned it down. They've been pleading now with, uh, with politicians in Pakistan, including their own supporters, and saying, please back us in coming into your country. Well, Pakistani politicians may be venal, they may be corrupt, but they don't want to commit suicide. <laughs> and to give the green light to the United States to come and occupy the Northwest Frontier Province would be committing suicide. And they don't want to do it. And it's a mess. And the only way out of this mess, in my opinion, is a regional solution. And that solution means that you have to have the local countries, which is India, very important in Afghanistan, and the largest country in that particular region, India, Pakistan, Iran, probably Russia, to sit down, because they all have support in this country, and agree to a, what will happen after a NATO withdrawal and insist on a national government uh, which reflects the interests of the entire country and for 10 years fund them to build schools, hospitals, build an infrastructure. That is what NATO has been incapable of doing because if you're neoliberals who don't believe in building an infrastructure in your own countries and are privatizing everything, it becomes very difficult to do it in a country you've just occupied. So what they have is companies going in, private companies creating certain things but requiring bodyguards and special uh, protection from hired mercenaries for them even to function in that country. 
So they can't do that. But the regional countries can push something through. Afghanistan is now a country which has been at war since 1979 onwards. That's how long that country's been at war. It's been ravaged by the, by the, by the war. And even Karzai, who's a puppet ruler, even he says, pleads publicly with the Americans, please don't kill too many civilians, because every time you kill civilians, more and more people go and fight against us. Well, they shouldn't need to be told that. You know, the 20th century has been full of examples uh, like this. And repeating these mistakes it doesn't improve matters. But what ultimately it also comes down to is what has happened to politics and democracy in the West itself. Because if you look at most of the Western world, the differences between center-left and center-right virtually non-existent. Sarkozy elected on a very right-wing ticket in France. The first thing he did was to buy over three former socialist cabinet ministers and put them in his cabinet. Same thing could easily happen here. It has happened here. You had some Tories who defected to Blair when they thought he would be winning forever. And it'll begin to happen the opposite way if Cameron is elected uh, uh, at the next uh, general election. So it's almost as if there's no big political divide left in the world today. And if the Chinese were clever, they would organize two parties, call one the Chinese Democratic Party and the other the Chinese Republican Capitalist Party, uh, run both of them and have occasional elections. <laughs> and preserve the system. Because that is increasingly what is becoming the case. So ironically enough, the neoliberal economic system is reducing democratic accountability and democratic functioning. Because if you say the market decides everything, then what you're also saying is that there's no role, basically, for official politics at all. If the market decides anything, why doesn't the market decide who runs the country as well? Why don't we have PFIs to hire people to go and fight wars? And this is why a word of advice to Alex Salmon, who uh, I spoke, you know, we've spoken in public together against the Iraq war. It's no good winning an election unless you have a very clear idea in Scotland or going independent unless you know what you want to put in that Scottish space. What's the point of acquiring a space unless it's going to be different? And so is Scotland going to be a republic? That would be a first for these. Well, it wouldn't be the Irish were a republic. Uh, are you going to get rid of the Polaris, the submarine base, the nuclear power stations? Once I remember many years ago, either it was Alex Salmon or some other SNP leader jokingly saying on radio, one of the first things we'll do when we go independent is do a deal with the French to come and rebuild our railway system. <laughs> Very good idea. But, you know, it's that style of thinking which is needed, apart from just joining the EU as yet another little entity. It's what is, is put in this space. 
And that's where it's very interesting what these American guys like Larry Summers are talking about. Because it's not, I mean, Scotland has avoided in some case the worst of what has happened south of the border, but not completely, as you know perfectly well. I mean, you know, the NHS, GPs, their availability, all that has been changed to create a new culture of dependency on privatization, on corporations, etc. This is the correct way. This was the consensus, the Washington consensus established after the fall of communism. This consensus is now beginning to crack up. The first big revulsion against it happened in South America. And South America was the first continent in which these policies were tried out long before the fall of communism. They were tried out in Chile under Pinochet. That's when neoliberalism was first tried out. But you'd crush the trade unions, ban the parties, and then you try out your economic system. It was subsequently tried out in Argentina. It was, uh, and in Argentina, for 15 years, the governments did everything the international financial institutions asked them to do, and finally they collapsed. Four presidents fell within a fortnight. The country collapsed, the banks closed down, middle-class people in Buenos Aires used to send their kids out at night to the big hotels to see if they could scavenge some food. I saw that with my own eyes in Buenos Aires. At the same time, and this is interesting, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Peru, you had giant movements of the poor challenging privatization. In Bolivia, a company called Bechtel, very close to the Republican administration, was given charge of the water by the municipality, by the government. They said, buy the water. They took the water supply of Cochabamba, quite an important town. And one of the laws they had passed through that people had no longer the right to go on their rooftops and collect rainwater in receptacles. It was illegal because water was owned by the Bechtel Corporation. What happened? There was an insurrection. The whole town came out, the troops opened fire, two kids were killed, many were injured, and the town was occupied by its population. They had to cave in, Bechtel was kicked out, the municipality took back control. In Peru, in the heart of the countryside, Peruvian peasants, amongst the most desperately poor people in the world, fought a three-week battle against troops. Why? To stop the electricity being privatized. And I remember I watched this, I was in South America at the time, and I watched it on television, a poor peasant being interviewed. And CNN was asking him, who are you, who are you, who's giving you the money, is who's back? They said, look, I'm not political. His exact words, I'm not political, I'm not a member of any party. But the reason I'm fighting is because I'm poor. And I know that once electricity is privatized, a lot of the villages in these Cusco region will go dark because we won't be a able to afford their bills, because we may not be educated, we may not be political, but one thing we know is that when anything is privatized, the prices go up. This is a poor Peruvian peasant. In Venezuela, there was a semi-insurrection when subsidies to the poor were stopped. 
that explains the changes, the victory of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, re-elected three times. The victory of Evo Morales in Bolivia, being attacked even as we speak <clears throat> by the local elite. The victory of Rafael Correa in Ecuador, the changes taking place. And all these people are pushing through. It's not you know, revolutionary, it's social democracy. What is Chavez saying in Venezuela? We need to use the oil money to build schools, hospitals, and universities for the poor. Free education. And we will use the profits from the oil to do it. And it's helping the whole of Latin America whenever they need it to do it, do it as well. That is a model which is worth emulating. And I often say to my trade union friends in this country and other parts of Europe, the Latin American peasants have shown themselves to be way ahead of you guys. Tarek, can I just mention that your five-minute warning was 15 minutes ago? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so in, in, in a world which seems desperate, there are signs of hope uh, emerging in it. And these signs of hope have to be grasped because that's what we lost out on in the late 80s, 90s, and the beginning of the century. Hope disappeared. People felt they couldn't do anything any longer. But things can be done if the will is there. And that is extremely important. We're going to go straight to questions from the audience because I don't want to deprive you of the opportunity and, um, and Tarek in time-honoured fashion has, um, has mislaid his watch. So um, <laughs> I have to say where you're still up for Glasgow East doesn't have quite the same ring as where you're still up for Portillo, but still, let's, uh, let's go straight to questions. And could you wait for the microphone to arrive, please? Gentlemen up there. Thank you. Enjoy the talk very much, but I want to go back to something you said earlier. It seems to me that when you say that New Labour was just a continuation of Thatcherism, you're making a terrible oversimplification. I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing it and certainly not the invasion of Iraq. But I just sat there and thought of things like, well, legal rights for trade union recognition, minimum wage, equal age of consent for homosexuals, devolution <coughs> for Scotland. Not perfect, but advantages nonetheless. And for those of us who remember the years of Thatcherism and how bad it was, this was an improvement, and if you deny that, then you misrepresent history and you devalue your own arguments. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad to see there is some residual support for Labour still in, in this, this island. Look, if you look at all the big things that New Labour has done, it was a continuation of Thatcherism, without any doubt. Uh, and they themselves are very proud of it. The first thing Blair did when he got elected was invite Thatcher to Downing Street. First thing Gordon Brown did when he got elected was to invite Thatcher to 10 Downing Street. Yeah, but that's, that's something. It's to show continuity and appreciation. And why? Because they identify with that. They regard her as very courageous. David Miliband attacked Cameron because he's not like Thatcher. He said that. So equal rights for homosexuals, 
which I totally support, was a fight which began in the late 50s and 60s, and that fight began to be one in the years of the Wilson government, when Roy Jenkins actually removed most of the discrimination uh, and legal restrictions on homosexuality. They were fought for, as the women fought for their rights. In the big terms of the economy, New Labour went beyond Thatcherism in what it's doing to the National Health Service. And have no doubt about it, what is happening in the National Health Service is not even such a backdoor privatization, but quite open. Chunks of it are already being privatized. And you have in this town a very good scholar and doctor, Alison Pollock, who lives here, who's written a book called NHS PLC, in which she outlines that. Education, education, education? For who? For academies funded by companies? Well, could I, look, could I, could I you just know, if you think that, you can go and talk to people and find out for yourself. I mean, the people in Glasgow gave a very clear rebuff to all that. Why do you think New Labour is standing on the brink of a total wipeout? Because people have seen through all the nonsense that was being spouted. I mean, I remember going to the Scottish Parliament about two or three years ago, and I saw a whole, you know, I was going to meet various people. And I saw the new Labour contingent in there. The body language, their preoccupations, honestly. I then realized what had happened to Scottish, what had happened to the Tories in Scotland. That's where they were now, in new Labour. Every young opportunist, whatever, his politics was clamoring to new Labour. That's the reality of it. So the tiny SOPs which were handed out don't make up for what they did. More questions? Yes, in the front here. Um, I came um, very interested in South America, and we only had a few minutes at the end, but what I'm curious about mm. is how do you see um, what it is that we can learn from the South American experience when a great deal of that seems to be based on a peasant rural class doing something about its um, situation. Uh, where are the peasant rural classes here who are going to do something about our situation? Uh, well, the Scottish peasantry seems to be doing quite well. <laughs> Look, it's not the peasant rural class, it's these giant social movements which were thrown up. Some of them started in the countryside, but what I described to you in Cochabamba in Bolivia was an urban uprising. It's essentially, how do you organize yourselves through traditional parties and labor movement organizations or some new form of organization? That's the big question. And in Latin America, they realized that all the traditional parties had let them down. I mean, the organization, uh, the party which opened fire on workers and unemployed in Caracas in 1989, uh, was a social democratic party affiliated to the Second International. 3,000 people died that day. That is what explains the total disgust with the uh, uh, official politics and the emergence of something new. 
So it's, it's when people fight and people struggle, they sometimes lose, and, but sometimes they win. And the interesting thing is that in South America, they're winning at the moment. I'm not saying this will last forever. They might lose again. But that is what is going on there, and that is certainly not something which is happening in, in, in Europe at the moment. There was somebody at the back, and a gentleman over there was next, but somebody at the back there. Tavik, I warmly welcome your comments on the Scottish political situation, and I only hope that when we are independent, we will have enough big-heartedness as a nation not to cut off our ties with England, but to bear in mind that England will be a country that will have little to hold back the tide of conservatism without the Scottish weight that has been behind it before. But you said that you had said to Alex Salmond that he must be careful because left and right have collapsed in their basis of values, if I can put it in my own words. I would ask you, if or when Scotland emerges independent again, what advice would you give to a nation that must rebuild its politics from values that will last and honor the human being? <clears throat> well, uh, from what I said, you probably gathered that what is put into, it's no good just getting independence unless you want to do something different. I mean, if you want to carry on as before in a marginally better way, why bother to break? The only f reason to be independent is to create a different society, you know, better than what existed before. And one hopes that they, it won't, if you leave it to the politicians, it won't happen. You have to have constant pressure from below, debates, discussions, movements, so that they know. I remember some years ago, there was an unofficial Scottish Assembly uh, set up, which actually encouraged debates and discussions between all the different factions. It was unofficial, but it helped to create a mood for, for genuine, real democracy, grassroots democracy, without which democracy at the top doesn't function. I mean, one of the other things that has happened in these years has been the total, the taking away of quite important powers that local government used to have in England. It's been taken away from them because neoliberalism doesn't justify it. Uh, so what happens in Scotland, I think, is extremely important, but it will not just simply depend on Alex Salmon and the SNP, it will depend on all of you, what you want. And these things have to be discussed and fought out. And it's true, the, if Scotland goes independent after a Tory victory in the South, which I think is probably likely to happen, uh, I think it's because it will be within the context of the European Union, there's no question of any you know, stupidity, of no movements allowed or anything. That will all carry on as before. People will travel to and fro. But I certainly hope that Scotland will, as I said, push the militarism aside and not engage in these wars and do something different, offer a different role. Otherwise, there's no point to it. So that is my hope that something like that will happen, and that will then have an impact in the South as well, if it does. Gentleman over there, and then one down there. Yeah. First of all, a very big thank you for simply bringing us a very enlightening and updating of what is going on in the world. 
another and very, very simple question. You say you write in the New Left Review. Is the New Left Review available in newsagents or by subscription <laughs> only? Well, if, if newsagents took the New Left Review, we would be delighted. But it's, it's, it's very interesting you raise that, because I was lunching with an old socialist friend earlier today, and we were discussing this. And what has happened is, you have to subscribe to the NLR, New Left Review, but you go online and read it as well. And what we have had since the emergence of new technology is we have digitalized all the New Left Reviews from the 60s onwards. You know, we, in, in 2010, the NLR will be 50 years old. Uh, and so all the old articles, you know, texts by historic uh, figures, you know, in the labor movement and intellectuals are all in there. And we have now found that each issue, once a new issue goes up on the website, a quarter of a million people download at least one article to read it. So from that point of view, our influence, you know, within certain circles has, has increased a lot. It's also published simultaneously in Spanish, so it goes through the whole of South America. Uh, and there are annual editions of it, which come out in about six, eight other languages. I have to say, Tarek, that's very, very brave in <laughs> putting all your old archive material online. I mean, there's sometimes there's nothing more embarrassing than going through old cuttings, but... Uh, <laughs> We've got nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> there's a gentleman in the front there. Hello. Um, <coughs> If I can just make a, a quick comment about the uh, education standards in this country. I recently graduated university and there was a, a girl on my course who, like myself, just went through the four years of university and came out with a 2-1 degree. And uh, up until a couple of months before our graduation, she genuinely seemed to have no idea of the difference between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So I don't know if it can was be Was she doing a history degree by any chance? <laughs> no, no. But... Uh, were you at St. Andrews? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. But um, what, what I was... Uh, what, Sorry, I was uh, what I was going to get at was um, I've always been quite a follower of, uh, of the, the movements in, in South America, uh, you know, Venezuela and Bolivia, especially things like the land reform. Um, and I was just wondering what your opinion would be of this uh, recent, the re more recent developments in Venezuela and uh, what I see as being sort of subtly increasing uh, demonization of Chavez in the Western press. <coughs> Do you believe it's, it's justified or is it just, you know, revenge for his antagonizing Bush all the time? Well, the one word you shouldn't use in relation to the demonization in the Western media is subtle. <laughs> it's been very open. Uh, completely orchestrated. I mean, in the early years of Chavez, you could read the same article virtually in six different newspapers in Europe. Virtually, I did a survey of it. Sometimes even the sentences used were exactly the same. So it was a systematic campaign, not so much because he attacked Bush 
but largely because he was attacking the Washington consensus and saying neoliberalism hasn't worked for our continent. We've got to get together as a continent. It's interesting, it's a very internationalist project, saying we will remain separate countries, but we will work together as Simon Bolivar once wanted us to do, uh, and, and helping each other and learning from each other. And they set up a television network for Latin America called Telesur, Television of the South. And they said, you can walk into any Latin American, South American country and ask kids on the street, what's the capital of your country? And he'll say whatever it is, or she'll say, what's the capital of the United States? Everyone knows Washington. What's the capital of Brazil? What's Ecuador? So he said, what has happened is we've been divided. And these divisions should come to an end. And we seek to unite the continent, so we speak as much as possible with one voice, which will make us all stronger. How did you feel about him trying to amend the Constitution so that he could stand for election longer than... I thought it was a mistake. Uh, and the reason, and I said as much, uh, and I've written it in my book as well, the new paperback edition, I thought it was a mistake because I think the, f the interesting thing about South America is all these people have been elected democratically in Venezuela, in Bolivia, in Ecuador. The entire media was opposed to them, but they got elected, which shows we shouldn't overrate the influence of the media when you have movements from below. They were all elected, and I think that's an extremely important development for the left, that they mobilized support, they got elected. I am not in favor of, you know, they say the British prime minister can be elected and elected and elected. Well, that is technically true, but as we know in reality, it isn't true. And that's why they keep changing leaders. Thatcher was dumb, Blair was dumb, because they're scared they'll lose with the same leader if they go on again. So I think it was a mistake the way the referendum was organized, and I have always said to my Venezuelan friends, much better to build a collective leadership, much better to not be so dependent on one person, he is incredibly charismatic, and there is this big tradition of these people from the you know, two centuries ago. But still, it is not a healthy thing for a country's politics. We can time for probably another two quick ones. Gentleman in the middle there, and then a lady in the front. Okay. I, I, <laughs> if you're finished. <laughs> I'm promising um, I'll be brief, so you'll be yeah, brief. I'll be brief as well. Thatcher legitimized greed in, in the UK, and New Labour failed to address that is that's my take on recent politics um, with economic global economic downturn do you do you see from sort of previous economic downturns do does a politics develop that encourages greed in hard times or does a politics develop that maybe is more sharing and caring well it depends on the circumstances and it depends on what political groups and parties exist. I mean, when there was the big crisis of the 20s and 30s in the United States, they decided to go for a new deal, which was massive public spending to get the country moving again, and very imaginative projects of hiring lots of out-of-work writers, actors, musicians to go into the communities, to produce books, to paint murals, all that. And that showed some imagination. And one reason they were forced to do it was because at that time they thought of the big threat of communism, that if we don't do something, the commies will win. 
that threat no longer exists because virtually the whole world is capitalist. Uh, so they don't feel threatened by any rival, and which means that the pressures on them to do something very dramatic are less. But that's what should be done and uh, could be done if you had politicians with vision who, just, who didn't just think about today or lining their own pockets, but actually thought about what could be done to take the country forward. And that's why I've been saying what I've been saying about what is possible and should be created in the new Scottish space, which will be discussed from now till the referendum. Another last quick question there. <coughs> You mentioned that um, under New Labour there's been more wars than under Thatcher. However, when uh, the vote to go into Iraq happened, um, actually the Labour Party split and the Conservative Party voted practically everybody for the war. Therefore, if um, uh, Cameron does get voted in, as seems likely, um, what is going to fill the space, as, as you put it? How will the Tory government act? We're going to have more of the same, are we? Or what do you see happen? Well, if you look, you know, something which really did surprise me, I, I must be honest, was when Gordon Brown made uh, the pushing through of 42-day detention orders, which are like apartheid South Africa, into an issue of confidence. And lots of more progressive MPs, Labour MPs, went and voted for it, and the Tories opposed it. It did make you think what world we were living in. So, but by and large, I don't think a conservative, I mean, Thatcher modeled himself, uh, Blair modeled himself on Thatcher, and Cameron is modeling himself on Blair. So the continuity will be preserved, and with dire, dire results in the South, here you have something else which is possible, but those of us who live in the South will be uh, not in a good way. You're welcome to come. Well, yes, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to have to stop it there. Can I just ask a couple of quick favours? If you, you if we'd stay seated um, to let uh, Tarek go to the signing tent, you'll not be surprised to learn that it's left and left again. Um, <laughs> and for those of you who are, I mean, all, all of Tarek's books are available there, but for those of you who are particularly interested tonight in uh, uh, South American questions, this uh, revised edition of Pirates of the Caribbean uh, takes a, a tour around many of the questions you were, you were asking. Ladies and gentlemen, Tarek Ali.